0: All students, not just those from marginalized groups, seem more eager to enter energetically into the classroom discussion when they perceive it as pertaining directly to them. When non-white students talk in class, only when they feel connected via experience, it is not aberrant behavior. Students may be well-versed in a particular subject and yet be more inclined to speak confidently if that subject directly relates to their experience. Again, it must be remembered that there are students who may not feel the need to acknowledge that their enthusiastic participation is sparked by the connection of that discussion to personal experience. Bell Hooks, Chapter 6, Essentialism and Experience, in her book, Teaching to Transgress. Welcome
1: to season four of Safe Topics.
0: In this series, we're talking about books. And other things. Yes, other things, but we're gonna go deep on some books. Not like a full book review, but like a chapter by chapter review, which I guess adds up to a full book eventually.
1: (laughs) Yes, and we're gonna talk about anything else that makes us think about- How we teach. And why we teach. And we want you, the audience, to join us. Listen for details about how to do that at the end of this episode. All right,
0: here we go. So personal experience in the classroom, Curry. I know we had 36 minutes that we talked about how to talk about this chapter. And I think it was a really important pre-discussion to this discussion, just to kind of get definitions of terms and see where we both are coming from um, in reading this, because we read this separately, we select quotes separately, and then we come together and we kind of press record and go. But this time, um, you know, I asked us to hit the brakes there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and there's a few reasons for that, um, which we can lay out. Um, one is the, just the term essentialism. Mm -hmm. Um, we're reading that term. You as a sociologist, sociologist, me as a Mm -hmm. compositionist, uh, we are here in 2022. So what is hooks and, and Diana fuss, who's, who's a, a big part of this chapter what are they doing with that term? What are you and I doing with that term? So that that's something that we want to clarify.
0: Yeah, and and like you said, so as, as a sociologist, I when I hear essentialism, especially coming from a feminist scholar, like I immediately think of kind of a biological determinist approach, meaning like the you know essentialism being the essence of who we are based on the sex we are assigned or or biological categories, right? So that's where I go. And and that is not the way essentialism is used in this chapter. Or at least I don't think that's the way that it's used in this chapter. So there, there's a little bit of switching that happens for me. Um, and it takes me a little bit of a cognitive, it's a little bit of a cognitive exercise to put it in to the context of how they're talking about it here, which seems to be based on um that personal experience, like coming to a particular subject from your point of view that is informed by the experiences you've had directly. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And I think as a compositionist I'm thinking of essentialism really from the perspective of writing of and expression. So so the notion of voice I think really is is when I think of essentialism I I'm I'm that that's sort of living next to that term, right? And voice of course is one's authentic lived experience as it's been shaped by the communities that they're that they're they're, they're from and then attached to the environments they've grown up in, and so gender and race and um, culture these are all essential, right, within one's voice and expressed within one's voice, um, and so it's important that, especially as a compositionist, you know, I have authors from ethnic backgrounds from uh, who are representing sort of notions of gender and expression of gender. Um, and yet, at the same time, it's really important within my sort of theory of writing and representation that I also remember that you know the 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 we contain multitudes, right? And so I am part of this group and identify with this group, but within me are these complexities. And so, so essentialism is complex when I read it. It's 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 there's no monolithic group. There's no group who is just sort of this they're all the same it's no no there's such complexity and variety across and within right and so yeah so essentialism for me it is a term that like means something and is also kind of like so so complicated in its meaning it's hard to contain it even in a a paragraph
0: (laughs) you know right and so what I hear you saying is that no individual is you know um, 100 percent aligned with a monolithic narrative about a group. Right. 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 And and even within the diversity of uh, of groups, there is a diversity of experience um, individual to individual. Right.
1: Yeah. And and at the same time, it's a very important question to ask who is speaking and who can speak for whom or who is trying to speak for whom. And, And and for me, that's when Hooks and, and grappling with Diana Fuss in this chapter, essentialism, they're talking about essentialism as it's related to power structures. And and for Hooks, it's all about asking, when is essentialism perpetuating systems of domination? Right?
0: Yeah. It, it, even, so language, oh, language. <laughs> language, grappling. Yeah. Oh, Hooks grappling with Diana Fuss and and and, that is really kind of what's happening here in like an academic and writing and critique kind of way. Like they are grappling with each other, and and Bill Hooks is really going after Diana Fuss in this chapter. You yes. know, but, um, it's interesting because it is like you think of the actual word grappling, and of course, I'm thinking of jujitsu, and I'm thinking of like there is a fight happening, right? Right. But this is the way that we do it in writing in, in the academy, right? This is, yeah. this is the way this goes down. And it's in her collection of essays to be published. So it's like, Diana Fuss, be on notice. Go, you're going to read this, right? Yeah. right? Kind of thing. Um, what, what do you think of, like, before we even get into the classroom, what do you think about that kind of confrontation? Because I'm sure you've seen a lot of it author to author. And people are like, oh, you think this works great? I think it's crap. And that's not exactly what she's doing here, but it's like a lot more of an eloquent, professional way of saying your stuff is crap. <laughs>
1: totally. Well, okay. So, so let, 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 let's walk through it just a little bit. So and th- this, I think, is the form of academic takedowns, right? So early, the, the first the first move that Hooks makes is um, to sort of acknowledge, right, that there's some good stuff in Fuss's writing. Um, there's the clinch. Exactly, 78, <laughs> the clinch, nice. <laughs> that's a jujitsu concept, right? Yeah. yeah. This is the embrace that takes her down. <laughs> <laughs> embrace softens it. It's a clinch. It does. So let me just read a little bit. So 78. Throughout much of the book, this is Hook speaking. Throughout much of the book, uh, she, referring to Fuss, offers a brilliant analysis that allows critics to consider the positive possibilities of essentialism, even as she raises relevant critiques of its limitation. And then Hook says, in my writing on the subject... Um, Though not as specifically focused on essentialism as the fuss discussion, I concentrate on the ways critique of essentialism have usually deconstructed the idea of monolithic, homogenous Black identity and experience. So, and then she goes on from there. So the first move is praise and common sort of alignment, right? Respect your opponent. That's right. That's right. And then the paragraph after that is halfway through the fuss book, I began to feel dismayed and that dismay began with my reading of race, in quotes. This is a chapter under erasure, and then she goes on from there, right? So, so that's the moves, right? The grappling. Right. I just want to say one more thing, really quick. And this is this goes back to theory as liberatory practice, uh, the chapter we talked about last time, um, where she's critiquing academic theory for its when it gets overly com- com- competitive, right? And so I'm back on sixty eight. Mm-hmm. One of the uses uh, these individuals make of theory is in, is instrumental, they use it to set up unnecessary and competing hierarchies of thought, which re-inscribe the politics of domination by designating work as either inferior, superior, or more or less worthy of attention. Um, and so I think that's, that's kind of what I had in mind when I read this chapter, because Bell, Bell Hooks is engaging in that sort of academic takedown, right? Yeah. And she is, Hooks is positioning her thinking as offering us a better framework. I'll use that language than or more, or more, yeah, or more a framework mm-hmm. than, than Fuss is offering. But, but I also want to just so she's doing that, but I've also read her in her last chapter mm-hmm. critiquing that. So, so I think Hooks is doing more in this chapter than just that my theory is better, so publish me. Right, yeah, there's more she's trying to accomplish here and 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 so we'll get into those passages., um,
0: she is deeming this worthy of attention, yeah. obviously, right? right. She dedicated a whole chapter to critiquing it. Yeah, that means it's worthy of attention, right? It's worthy of attention in the way that I want to see what's missing here, right. Yeah. And and plenty of people have done this obviously with Hook's work as well. And um, this is what's always gonna happen, right? This is this is the this is the essence, if you will, of a literature review.
1: Yeah. You look
0: yeah. at what's been done yeah. and then you say, but here's what hasn't, yeah. or here's what may be missing, or if we do that again, are we gonna get the same thing, right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, and and so kind of. I want to bring it back with, with the critique, with another kind of move that that um, Hooks makes to talk more about the actual like classroom experiences, and then I'll have a question for you. So in the book here, um, back to chapter six, Bell Hooks writes, Fuss makes the point that artificial the, the artificial boundary between insider and outsider necessarily contains rather than disseminates knowledge. While I share this perception, I am disturbed that she never acknowledges that racism, sexism, and class elitism shape the structure of the classroom, Mm -hmm. creating a lived reality of insider versus outsider that is predetermined, often before any class discussion begins. Mm -hmm. Okay, so with that there, insider and outsider, Mm -hmm. who can talk, who can't, Mm-hmm. Who is this space for and who's passive and who is active in the space? I think we're getting down to those type of brass tacks, if you will. What What is your experience in in first in teaching and, and seeing the obvious insider is you? But when you are observing the way that classroom discussions play out, especially, I think, in the beginning of a semester, Yeah. Um, are you seeing this? Are you seeing a clear distinction of the insider outsider dichotomy? And then also those other factors that that bell hooks really um, ask us to bring in racism, sexism, class elitism, and how they shape the classroom. Do you see it shaping the classroom?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. okay. Early in the semester, first class, I really do try first class. I really do try to have discussion. I really don't just sit there and read the syllabus. I have students get up and write on the whiteboards. Um, I try to make it the in welcome to what this experience is going to be like, right? That's why I try to actually do that on the first, first day of class. What I te- What I notice is if we're just sitting in seats and I ask a question and it's kind of that cold start, the students who do participate are students who are identifying, I'm going to just assume this, identifying with me. Mm. Uh, on that kind of initial level, and what that might mean is they're perceiving in me some kind of shared shared experience or shared right. Maybe it's they're, they're white and male, and I do have white men talk pretty quickly in the class. But um, so it's cultural, is what you're saying. Maybe it's cultural. Yeah. The other so when students of color and and women speak in my class really early on, the kind of discourse that I perceive initially about them is a, they are comfortable with the English class, right? They are comfortable with that sort of seminar, Socratic discussion format. They've had some positive experiences, I'm assuming, in that um, they, they, they they feel equipped, meaning they've gone through some kind of positive, in quotes, training, right, in an English mm-hmm. class where they, they know what's going to happen next. They can anticipate, so they feel confident. The students who don't, are going to be, are, are, and again, I'm assuming students mm-hmm. who are not identifying with me at a discursive level and or a cultural level, right? Um, but, but,
0: but but back up to that second group. So the, yeah. the ones that are, you know, saying the English class. So is it, now I want to know if it's English class specifically, how, but then, and, and why, but then if it if it's college going subculture, right? So yes. college going culture yeah. generally is right. is. That more of what you think it is, or is it English class specifically? And then how would you know?
1: Exactly that's a great question. So I do think English class specifically is important to think about because I mean, you know, the experience with the red pen, and I'm holding up a red pen right that's now, right? right? Mm-hmm. My my students in an English class specifically have had the experience of their language being crossed out and in the margins said awkward right all in this very violent color of red right um and so and and i i don't know how pervasive that experience is across math classes probably you're not getting your language crossed out you know social studies or sociology maybe maybe not so i think on day one that's that is probably the this source of anxiety to participate is probably what kind of English teacher is this person going to be, right? right. Mm-hmm. Um, especially for students who are um, um, underrepresented in college and or, you know, uh, um, 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 students of color throughout high school experiences, etc. Um, I think later in the semester, the question of college student in general is more maybe something I'm grappling with a little bit more or I'm also now thinking about having you having asked me that question right now. Like, (laughs) when do I separate these things? And have I asked directly about this? I don't know that I have, but that would be my, yeah, my, the insights that I I would lean on.
0: Okay. So that is at least what you're observing without, you know, being able to ask every single student what's actually happening for them. And, and for, I think it's a big ask to even, you know, ask somebody that because how would they know? How would they know how they're behaving in any given environment? You know, there's a lot of um, ask the student type of discourse that happens in a college. Right. And, you know, make sure the student's perspective is is um, valued, which I obviously agree with. But then at the same time, I think students are in in the same kind of position where we are. where We don't know. So how would they? How would they know, right? Like, or what? Why would we expect them to know? It, yeah. it could definitely inform the the tapestry uh, of of understanding that we're that we're weaving. But it, it really, you know, I, I think sometimes we're asking too much when we say that this perspective um, needs to constantly be uh, included, or or we have an expectation that that the answer lies in any particular group you know
1: yeah, right wow. so um did you did you go uh, work with the um USc's uh yeah yeah uh, equity-minded mm-hmm. teaching Institute yeah um yeah Q, in, Q Institute yeah yeah mm-hmm. Center for urban education so one of the tools and I may have said this on this podcast already but one of the tools that I gained from that experience and I use today is informally tracking who is who is speaking and how often in every class session, who's grouping with whom when I allow for them to make their own sort of groups um, and, and to do that with a race conscious lens. And yeah. I was really uncomfortable with this at first, Q, because Q asks me to make those assumptions to not like go ask every student, how do you identify so I can identify you? They're just like, you do the guessing, like assume And I was really uncomfortable with that at first but because
0: asking everybody would be really uncomfortable
1: too although i i've been in seminars with with q folks who are like no on first day when i have students talking and it's mostly white students i say i'm hearing a lot from my white students and i would like to hear for more like i would like to hear more black voices please and i'm like damn i i'm not there yet i i'm not yeah i that (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm
0: I'm totally comfortable doing that, but I'm not going to do that. That's what I'm going to say.
1: Yeah. 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 I Anyway, so let me, so this is good. I'm glad that we're sharing kind of processing this a bit with each other. But, but what I do find really powerful about this tool is it checks my feelings as the professor as I exit the room. Because so often I'll leave a class and go, damn, that was an amazing class session. I felt like everybody was engaged. It was a rich discussion. But then when I check this informal tally, I'm realizing, you know what, actually only six students were mostly talking, right? Mm-hmm. And those six students are of this particular group. And when I first started doing that, I'm like, oh man, I, I do not see my classroom clearly, right? I, I'm seeing this through my own filters and my own emotions and my own hopes and biases and things. Um, so there is something to, there, as, as Hooks and even as Fuss kind of introduces, there are positives to be gained by by thinking about essentialism, right? Um, with regards to students' identities and lived experience, et cetera, uh, uh, to make for a more inclusive classroom. At the same time, Okay, so
0: let's say you leave the classroom and you're like just on cloud nine and you're like, oh, that went really well. What it really is, is you feel excited about the engagement that you experienced, however limited that may be, right? Like you yeah. you, you, don't see the full picture. Now, what I would be careful with is the over analysis of, of the situation to yeah. the point where you are no longer excited. What does your excitement say that class is going well and you bring that into the next class session and that energy? Is that energy going to be maintained after analysis or is it going to be dismayed after analysis? Meaning like you go back and look and you're like, actually, it was like four students that were really engaged and two of them were white males. And, you know, so it it was like, it's not what you thought it was. Now, does that impact your, does does that affect your attitude and and the way you feel about that class and the reaching for some specific uh, result intentionally and very much, uh, you know, almost forcing it. Now, does that hurt the classroom dynamic? Whereas having you in a good mood and thinking good about the classroom may be something powerful to help everybody feel better about the classroom experience.
1: Of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And that, that's that joy, right? That that just a central joy that I get when and we all do like you ask a question and a student says an answer and you're like, "Yes! Yes! That's like yeah. <laughs> you know, just and I'm I'm an, I, I'm joyful not because they the, the answer is now given to us. It's because you participated. It's because you got out there and you're part of this, right? So yeah, no, I, I hear you. What do you think about revealing
0: that to the students though? Like, yeah. hey, I learned this in this institute. I'm tracking this. This is why I'm tracking it. Here's the historical data, contemporary data. And and what do you all think about this? Because I think that can go like one of two ways. I mean, if, if, if the discussion isn't, it, it could be really fruitful if f- folks are like, on board and like oh that's cool and then that might even promote and encourage some folks to speak up because now that which is weird because i think they may have this like obligation or responsibility of being representatives of their group um and it may have some white male students or white students like pull back a little bit which these are not bad things but they are things yeah and then you know but it could go another way where it's like you know like uh a resistance to this idea that we're part of your pedagogical <laughs> experiment and, and, and you're tinkering around with it when like, I want you to just teach me English.
1: No, yeah, for sure. And actually I really like, I like that approach. It's so important to me in my syllabus on day one, it's, it's where we start the class and it's where this is a discussion based class. And, and, and the way we're going to do that is, We're going to share our ideas in a way that invites a response to those ideas and not in a way that shuts down a response to those ideas. And so and I tell them when we have these discussions and I hear language or a a tone or even like a logical structure that whether intended or not is shutting down other voices, we're going to call attention to that. And and that's what we do in a writing class is we call attention to our language and, and what it's actually accomplishing and what its impacts are and we're just going to have that conversation and so like it's on the table from day one that we're going to think about our thinking we're going to think about our language for the purpose of building community
0: yeah, yeah but I, I've yes and that no matter how well-intentioned or or thoughtful there is a you know that is going to be subjective right of like yes. what shuts down and what opens up Right. Because people can be shut down by things that you think are worded in the best possible way to open up.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. Because there may be a word in the question that is, yeah. you know, uh, uh, forgive me for using this word, but triggering. Right. Or or just something that is, you know, uh, that, that acts as a catalyst for someone to think about the entire discussion differently. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and we're human beings. This is not scripted. So right. it is very difficult to um, avoid those, you know, 100 yeah. uh, percent of the time. And it may just be like one student that is shut down. And we would probably say like one student shut down is one too many. And at the same time, it may be unavoidable. I mean, I, I think of even just with. Uh, colleagues or anybody that I talk to, that, like they have been offended or um, not necessarily, but well, what, by something I said, like if we're watching a presentation and they heard something that I didn't even hear, right? And sometimes it opens me up to like, oh, wow, yeah, that is a problem. Wow. And then sometimes I'm like, what's your problem kind of thing, you know, like, wow, yeah. like like that got you. And, and, and you know, I don't want to dismiss them, but at the same time, I really don't understand. But that might be another topic for another day. Going back to the, the these ideas of, like, bringing personal experience into the classroom and bringing personal experience into our work, you know, our yeah. collegial work. I think that these are things that we face and that we see and we witness and we experience. Um, I wouldn't say just often. I would say all the time, right? Yeah. You know, in the book, Bell Hooks writes, in the introductory paragraph to Essentialism in the Classroom, Fuss asks exactly what counts as experience, and should we defer to it in pedagogical situations? Framing, this, framing the question in this way makes it appear that comments about experiences necessarily disrupt the classroom, engaging the professor and students in a struggle for authority that can be mediated if the professor defers. So when things come up as they do, how it's impossible to quantify this, but I'm just going to ask you the impossible question: How do we know the extent or the appropriateness? Oh, these are hard ones. Uh, of like when a personal experience is is disclosed and expressed in the classroom to either counter or support whatever the lesson is whatever the discussion topic is um how do we know how much to include that into what we're doing and or is it or is it a disruptive thing that you know i i guess hold on let's think about it this way students share something right Yes. And it, it's obviously in opposition to what is, let's say they're like, oh, implicit bias, right? So implicit bias, this idea that um, you know, we all have implicit bias and it's based on our experiences, and we may feel like have a a, a stronger positive association with some people from some groups as opposed to other people in other groups. Now, somebody says, Well. I don't really think that exists because in my world, you know, I have friends that are black and and um, um, Latinx and and I have male friends, female friends, men, women, trans folks. So that really isn't a factor for me. I don't really have implicit bias. I don't believe in this idea. Now, that's that that is coming from personal experience is what yeah. the student's saying right now. How much of that is. um disruptive to the discussion and how much of it is to be included in that discussion? How do we facilitate that as professors? What do we do with that?
1: Right, right. So I think this, so the way I would handle that would be to Mm -hmm. open it up to further discussion right so to ask questions about that and then not necessarily to grill that particular student but maybe invite other points of view and maybe it continues to go in that direction maybe there's just more personal experience that's shared that's questioning that concept um and so um but i yeah so so but but i i haven't had that particular experience so let me share you know one that i have had uh a couple of years ago, uh, a, a student who is married to an um, active duty Marine had trouble with um, certain athletes protesting during the national anthem. This was a couple of years ago. Right. right. Um, so she shared that in the middle of a discussion that was really uh, um, engaged with disproportionate killing of black men by police and, sure. um, you know, how one draws attention to that in, in, in ways that might actually create change. And she just, you know, in the middle of that, shared this, I-, I can't really even be here right now because I'm just so angry that the flag is being misrepresented, is being disrespected. Right. Sure. And it just stopped us, right? It stopped us right away. Um and had other experiences like that. So I I'm of the position where I I feel like we we have to uh, this is tricky, right? <laughs> Those are my students' voices. Those are my students' lived experiences. They're in the classroom. And so maybe, maybe, so maybe we write. Maybe that's the next move to keep the discussion going, but in a more productive way. Maybe the discussion, I can engage it um, audibly, like we're doing, and it's still productive. And uh, Sean, here's what I, I, I really am where I'm thinking now like, instead of thinking of this as a discrete class and a discrete lesson. It's like, that is now a conversation that's gonna continue for weeks to come, right? And and we're gonna, because that particular student, by the time we got to our final projects, was saying things in her presentation that demonstrated that she had been listening to her classmates and that really firm position early on was now much more nuanced and that that she had done a lot of listening work um, between that moment and that next moment. Um, And so I- She made a turn. She did. And, but this is where I want to be really, really careful. I want to say, I want to trust my students and my ability to facilitate those discussions. Um, And I want to say that Hooks has given me a lot of tools and and, and encouragement that that's the right move. But I also want to acknowledge that I'm a real tall white man in front of the classroom. And if I say, wait, we tend to all wait. Um, um, Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And if, and if, yeah, so I've got a lot of privilege in that classroom. Um, and and I don't want to sort of say that this is the way we all should do it, right? That that my experience is very specific. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It sounds like she made a turn, but you know, you can make a turn without necessarily making a U-turn, you know. Right, right. Um, maybe holding on to some of those beliefs, but at the same time, you've added some more things to uh to your own understanding, right? Which yeah. I think is important, especially in a topic like that. I gotta say, like, I think some things that that I hear, you know, um really intimidate or cause anxiety um for professors when certain topics come up, or students say certain things like what you're talking about or what with what we're talking about here, um, especially in uh, opposition to the lesson, the content, or or something that is kind of going against the grain in a lot of ways in, in a classroom, especially at a college. Those are my favorite moments. I look forward to them. Right. And so I kind of have a different way because yeah, that's kind of where my problem solving. And I feel like m- m- the, the best use of my skills comes into play. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um. Because <laughs> when you said it's tricky, I always think, you know, you could validate. Uh, I, I say it all the time. I said it on the podcast. Validate what they're saying without agreeing to what they're saying. You know, yes. And I think that's a really important um, tool for for instructors, a pedagogical tool, because again, it's not shutting them down. Right. Exactly. It's opening them up to more. Right. Right. It, that that's actually what it's doing. And so you know, in the case of the student that you're talking about, I'd be like, yes. People feel like disrespecting the flag is a bad thing. That's true. Yeah. And what, what are these athletes thinking when they're doing this, as opposed to how us as an audience is receiving it? Yeah. And it is true that as the audience, we get to decide how that lands for us. And if you view it as disrespecting the flag, you're totally entitled that, to that. But do we understand what the athlete is thinking when they're engaging in that behavior? And does that help us in our own understanding of what it means to respect or disrespect the flag, right? Yes. And if the athlete's like, it's not about the flag. Right. I just, while we're singing this anthem that represents our culture and our values, I feel like some of our values, we've gone astray from those or we were never really on track for those. And, you know, I don't feel as accepted Into this society, so this symbolism and this ritual of you know really affirming our values, I'm not on board with that because I feel like my group or the group that I care about is not being treated fairly and is in fact being killed. Yeah. Now, if you felt that way, you know, I think kneeling would be one of the most uh, a minimal act of dissidence, right? Of 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 dissent, right? Yep. Um. Yeah, and,
1: and so anyway. I uh, but, but but I think that's a really good – so just that debate. Yeah. Qu- the question is, whose assertion gets to hold authority? Is it the athlete who says, no, no, it's not about the flag. It's about, you know, my community and the oppression? And, or is it the person who says, no, no, any act disrespecting the flag is an act disrespecting the flag, and therefore – those, if we go back to lived experience, both of those positions have weight and value. Like, like it's hard to say, well, if I, a teacher say they're right and you're wrong, I'm now, I feel, um, what I'm doing is ideological. What I'm not doing is pedagogical. Right. Right. Because especially in an English class, the debate, the debate from these two perspectives is what's most important. And the listening, what you just talked about, the, getting to the point where no no okay let me let me let me hold back my assertion and let me listen to this other lived experience to illuminate to make more complex my own positions
0: that's the move right but i think there's also a discussion of the commodification of agendas right because if, if your news network wants to frame the athlete as yeah. somebody who's disrespecting the flag, our troops, our nation, and is somebody who clearly doesn't even deserve to be an American, um, then, then it's going to go one way. Because that that's how they're going to profit off of spinning this story to fit the agenda, which has now become a commodity to purchase, as opposed to something to subscribe to based on your own ideological exploration
1: right exactly and so now we're getting back into like so why is that news network taking that sort of lens and continuing that lens it is it because you know profit is involved in that right and, and keeping eyeballs and, power. And, and power and power and mm-hmm. power is exactly exactly and so in the classroom i feel like what hooks continually comes to in this this chapter is always be questioning systems of domination. Always be questioning systems of domination. And that takes you to some really nuanced, complex spaces. It takes you to spaces where Hooks herself says, sometimes we can't go forward. Sometimes we have to just sit with this yearning, right? This sort of desire to know, and that itself is a way of knowing. Um, and it's hard, it's hard for me. It's hard to do that. Let me just say that Right. It's, it's hard to even like. Talk about a practice that makes that concrete. Right. But I feel well, like. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. yeah. Well, I was going to
0: say shortly after that passage that I just wrote, Bell Hooks asked this. She, said, she says, we might ask, how can professors and students who want to share personal experience in the classroom do so without promoting essentialist standpoints that exclude? well that is that's quite the careful dance my friend so i would say you know maybe we don't <laughs> maybe maybe we we understand and and we set up discussions work through discussions in a way that says this might feel like someone's being excluded you know as long as it's not malicious right as long as it's not coming from some place of of anger and hate Ooh, you know, through the work that we do here, we can we can try to get through that together. Right. Yeah. You know, with 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 some some parameters that make sure that, you know, offensive language slurs, you know, egregious stuff doesn't go down. Right. That's the hope. Yeah, But if we don't it, it, it almost feels like we are really trapping ourselves into a space where we cannot be authentic about our intellectual journey and, and, and what we're finding along the way and disclose that to people so that we can understand it better by being informed by their perspectives. If we are so cautious that, that um, our essentialist standpoint is going to be salient and exclusion is the inevitable result of expressing that that essentialist standpoint.
1: Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so, and I think one of the things I'm struggling with here and probably shouldn't be is I, I, my tendency is to move towards a how, how do I do this and how, how do we solve this problem? And I don't think that that's appropriate. I don't even think that's what Hooks is sort of inviting us to think about with this chapter. I think it's more why we strive for it regardless, regardless of uh, whether we've totally figured it out or we can even share it with each other. It's why, why we strive for this um, to allow students to express personal experience and engage in those essential sort of fundamental markers and, and um, formative experiences that that characterize their thinking about things, why we, why we strive to allow and validate all those in our classroom is because of what I believe about how knowledge is built. Let me just say it that way. And Mm -hmm. I feel like this is something else that distinguishes fuss from hooks. Fuss seems to be more aligned with there is truth and there's personal experience. And one must set personal experience aside to to sort of study and listen and sort of receive truth. Hooks, hooks on the other hand embraces this like conocimientos, right? This ways of knowing this funds of knowledge. It's, it's, We build, we can, a a constructivist approach, in other words, which is, which is an epistemology that I embrace, that knowledge is something we build ourselves and we share with each other. And through a collective sharing of knowledge, I increase, I increase my epistemology.
0: Yeah. And I think professionally, I embrace all of those, both of those, all of those. Because I think it's important to do so as a scholar, as a yeah. professional. Personally, yeah, I have my inclination. Well, you know, it, it, it leans toward one over the other. I'm not going to share it here, though. You know, it, it, well, it's kind of like if somebody <laughs> somebody comes to me, you know, with this kind of postmodern, poststructuralist perspective of like there is no definite truth, right? Right. right. There's no one truth, right. And then I say, how dare you speak to me in absolutes when telling me there are no absolutes? Exactly. You know, so it, it, because that could be the truth in itself, right? That there are no truths, you know, and I'm not being nitpicky. That's real. That's real. Yes. So, you know, I don't buy arguments of like all truths are valid, but then I also don't buy the argument that one truth is valid and that's the one we should learn and all these other ones are just disruptions to that. Well damn it that truth should be fucking disrupted like that's that's the point. that's what we're here for. what are we but, doing if we're not trying to disrupt the truth that we know up to this point that's the whole point of scholarship. And so you know we we evolve from there we're not just learning the math equations so you could do the math equations we're learning so you can find a better fucking equation. We should, or a better way of writing. Don't just write exactly the way I want you to write because that, and I know that's not what y'all do. I'm just, you know, this very stereotypical kind of, (laughs) um, you know, uh, conceptualizing of, of what an English class is like, write it exactly like this no you 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 know you want to learn things so that you can then be innovative to do things but and not everyone's gonna do that, but the hope is some will and push us forward to the next thing and I think that's what you know a lot of people in the perspective that you say that you um are more aligned with I think that that's what they do is they really push against things that need to be pushed and need to be challenged and and I think that's healthy um are you a fan of hair uh Henry Giroux you know
1: I'm not super familiar with Henry Giroux
0: so I was like obsessed with this guy in, in in my undergraduate and graduate career because uh just his his writing was so pointed and so powerful in in critiquing the education system and and teaching and and all these different things so I've read a lot of him to the point where I had to stop because it was just too much but um Yeah, I I like what she says here. And and before we wrap up, I want to have this and then, you know, turn to you for a last word. So Henry Giroux, in his writing on critical pedagogy, suggests that the notion of experience has to be situated within a theory of learning. Giroux suggests that professors must learn to respect the way students as well as their need to speak about them in classroom settings. Giroux writes, You can't deny that students have experiences, and you can't deny that these experiences are relevant to the learning process, even though you might say these experiences are limited, raw, unfruitful, or whatever. Students have memories, families, religions, feelings, languages, and cultures that give them a distinctive voice. We can critically engage that experience and we can move beyond it, but we can't deny it. Mm-hmm. Back to Hooks. Usually mm-hmm. it is in this context where the experiential knowledge of students is being denied or negated that they may feel most determined to oppress upon the listeners both its value and its superiority to other ways of knowing. So that goes right back to the, the situation you had with the student and the, the debate over respect, disrespect of the flag and, and athlete protest because right there we can't deny it right like you but we can we can critically engage it and then move beyond it and i love what he says there because that that to me is my entire approach to any situation on any part of the agenda spectrum you know like you you could take that and say let's critically engage it and let's move beyond it
1: well and and i really so that that the phrase ways of knowing is so essential uh, mm-hmm. uh, to this, to this, to, to thinking about this stuff, because it's, it's not, it's not saying knowledge is or a knowledge, a fact is sort of better than another, or that these have a sequence or anything. It's how we come to know things. What we know is cognitively, emotionally, bodily, right? Like, like we, we come to know things through as individuals, Totally different means and experiences, right? Um, we know that about learners, um, sharing knowledge, receiving knowledge, right? So ways of knowing is is vast and complex, and 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 it's really core to this chapter. Um, and it's
0: important. And- it's important. But even bell Hook says that she is troubled by the term authority of experience. Yes, and yes. I think that's important too. Yes. That there are personal experiences they are part of the knowledge building and knowledge sharing and they are important actually like you say they are essential however they have they they shouldn't be weighted over that of others because then it becomes like well it then it becomes that superiority thing right it becomes a hierarchy it sometimes we use the the our analysis and our critique of the dominance hierarchy in order to form a new hierarchy that only exists in limited spaces like the classroom.
1: Yes, this is her problem with us using the terms handle and we right in the quote. That's right. Us raises the question: How are we to handle students? And and this sort of the and and hooks really zooms in on those two words. Handles suggest images and manipulation, and the collective we in this in this phrase is the sort of assumed unified pedagogical practice shared by other professors. It's this, right, like, what's the toolkit for me when this kind of student says that kind of thing, I get to handle it so we can get back on track, right? That's the, Or I have
0: to deal with this student.
1: Deal with, exactly.
0: Yeah, that's another one, and I think I've been guilty of using that term, but it, I feel feel it when I hear it, you know, or I read it. I have to deal with this situation, deal with this student, deal with this colleague. It's, it's very dismissive and it definitely positions yourself as superior to the,
1: the, the subject, right? Exactly. And it's going to be something that teachers feel all the time for so many different reasons and so many different circumstances. It's we are in week 15 and you have a final coming up and I've got to get to this so that you know it. I've got to deal with this. So we Mm -hmm. get, or I have a, you know, this, this sort of what I believe about society and, and, and inclusivity and diversity. And I have a student who's disrupting that or threatening that or threatening me. I have to deal with that. Right. Like to all kinds. Right. So, and, and, And I'm not saying that those are bad or that those are equal. Um, What I am saying is, again, Hooks is asking us to be always thinking about systems of authority, systems of domination. What she's calling us to is teaching to transgress, right? Uh, 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 Theory as liberatory practice, education as a practice of freedom. And when we deal with things, we immediately reassume that position of authority. Sometimes we have to. Let me say one more thing. Hooks, right around where you were reading earlier, uh, on the page after, Hooks gives us this framework of analytic and cultural spaces. This is something that came up super early, way back in um, in, uh, engaged pedagogy, that sort of and statement. But on Mm -hmm. 89, she says, if I bring to the class only analytical ways of knowing and someone else brings personal experience, I welcome that knowledge because it will enhance our learning right? And, and 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 this is what I want to say, Sean. When we create a class, when we strive for a classroom community where we all trust each other and we say things wanting a response to the way we say things, I can share a lived experience that sounds like it's essentially exclusive of a lived experience that you share. But within that community, within that framework, the fact of you saying that forces me to analyze what I just shared, right? And together, doesn't doesn't deny it and it's not going to erase it. It shouldn't erase it, but it's going to give me a framework. Just the fact that you shared and I shared within that community, I now have a framework for thinking about my lived experience, right? That I couldn't have had otherwise. That's right. That's only possible if I trust you and you trust me. Um, I think any other way, we just start to handle each other or grapple with each other in ways that are more hierarchical. Yeah.
0: Right. I, I, this discussion this discussion really makes me think about the 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 role that the need for control plays in all of this and the ego, you know, because if I share a personal experience and I want to control the direction of the discussion and my ego is driving the message, then it's going to be a competition at that point, right? yeah, yeah. it's not a collaborative endeavor it, right. it's it, it's very much fueled by competition of like I want to be right, I want you to think about it this way, and I want you to know that I'm right in thinking about it this way. yeah and this is why. and because this this happened to me or I think you know, I learned it this way and you should you should respect that. Now that can go as far as that, but then when it crosses over to that need for control, where it's not just, I want you to respect that because I think we can get there, but it's, I want you to adopt that. Now that's how I want you to think about it. Right. That's where it becomes dangerous. And that's why we have to really examine ourselves because with the role of professor, however limited the authority is, it's there and we can assert that kind of authority and some will succumb to it and some will resent it and hate it. Absolutely. Right. Um, and so that need for control, I think is something we, we always have to be mindful of because it may come from us. It may come from students. It may come from, you know, all of these different things, but that is something that drives, I think
1: most discussions. Yeah. It, it makes me wonder if there's a difference, and I don't have an answer to this, and I've been thinking about it for a little while, but, but I'm I definitely not resolved this thinking. It makes me wonder if there's a difference between classroom management, like late work or show up on time or, or decorum or whatever. Is there a difference between that and pedagogy? Is pedagogy, in other words, fundamentally not about classroom management? It's not about control. Pedagogy is about a theory and philosophy of how we teach and how we learn and classroom management is just sort of maybe an apparatus that a pedagogy uses. It's a toolkit that pedagogy uses, but but they are different things. In other words, and and, and this is the question I have: mm-hmm. Do I think in classroom management and make a mistake in thinking that that's my pedagogy and haven't yet really adopted or gra- or or developed the pedagogy? Right. Like, because because the, then I am teaching just about control. That's all it is. It's just we got to learn this. Here's how you learn it. Here's how you do it on the test. Here it is. Which is. And again, I don't know. Maybe maybe this is a false binary. Maybe they are, of course, mixed, but. Well, you, you know, I'm going to say they're mixed, but the, the the
0: the we did a whole podcast on this, the house and the home thing, you remember? Right. So this is what it is, is like the, there are certain policies for my house, right? Yeah. Like I have to have certain things. I have to have this many, you know, uh, uh, carbon monoxide, uh, detectors. I have to have certain, uh, you know, smoke detector. Let's just put that as an example. Right. Right. And so there, are, and, and there's zoning and uh permitting issues right like all of that i need to be aware of those are the the formal setups of the home of the house house now when we think about a home that's how we live right so i think of like the house being the classroom management and then the home being the pedagogy right yeah now in my home we might be like we are bakers we like to bake goods right we make cookies we're we're always baking something that, that's what makes our home. It makes it warm, makes it smell nice. We we really associate with those things, right? There's like, you know, pictures on the wall of like cookies and stuff. So anyway, in my home, when we're baking cookies, something might go wrong. Now yes. there's a little bit of a, the, the cookies are burning. Yes. There's some smoke. Right. Classroom management is that fire detector or that smoke alarm. Yeah. It goes off. Thank goodness I had these policies. It warns me that I got to do something. Right. To, to uh reestablish the home feeling, right? It turns into a house real quick when you got yeah. to address smoke. Got and it. It goes back to being a home. And then it could be a memory of like, remember we had to do that? Thank God, thank goodness we had those those um you know precautions in place and, and we we're following these policies. Boom. Same thing in the classroom. Something happens. Our pedagogy, we're like, we teach this way, there's a disruption to that, or something that is severe that we need to address, not deal with. What we need to address. Well, then we fall back on the policies, we fall back on the classroom management, right? So yeah. that we can course correct and get back to the pedagogy. Does that make sense?
1: It does, it does, but so I just I wonder the the that home you describe mm-hmm. is so so characterized by a culture of baking, a philosophy of baking yeah would you need to even worry about what to do if there's smoke because because when something burns is so a part of the baking process and there's so many just like like established and sort of just lived theories about what to do when something starts to burn that if you have a smoke alarm in your house it comes from that philosophy and it's just simply a tool that mm-hmm. triggers uh, 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 a response that's already sort of built in, right? And so I guess what I'm but asking the reason
0: you have the smoke alarm isn't because you bake, it's right. because it's a policy, right? It's a classroom management thing, it's a it's a it's a policy, it's something that you are required to have. Now, the reason that we have it is so that the house doesn't burn down because we love to bake right now. If I have open I'm like open discussions in my class. Yes. I want say what you feel full disclosure. We are good. Like I want to have this be as open as possible. Okay. Better watch out. Cause that classroom might burn down. You're right. You're and right. You better you're have right. things in place that you can fall back on That's because right. that can go down a road that you're not prepared for. Yes. And that can lead to things that are unjust for a lot of people in that classroom.
1: Absolutely. I totally agree with that. I guess, and we don't have to belabor this too much more the, the, where I'm stuck on this question is I feel like some bakers come to baking through thinking about fire alarms first. Like they come to bake with, with this apparatus of controlling the baking via all these little instruments and things rather than coming at it through a philosophy of what baking is. And I feel like that for me, that might've been my early teaching that I came to the classroom with this what to do if this happens? What to do if this happens? What to, and th- these are your outcomes, and get to them. And here's how the book helps you do that. Versus a a philosophy of teaching, a philosophy of learning. I agree. Like these things become sort of two sides to the same coin, in a sense. But but when when I think about hooks's call to to question our authority, systems of domination, and how do you how do you validate lived experience? and, 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 and consider it both beneficial and promising as well as problematic, right? Like she, she, I I won't read them, but there's at least two stories she tells in this book or, or sort of hypothetical she offers where it's just her pedagogy and praxis where it's her asking her students questions about something that's introduced and just, you know, pedagogically she's managing her class not administratively let me just say it that way
0: yeah I I, I feel the same I feel like that's what I do it's just when things certain things happen I'm glad that there's those other mechanisms formal mechanisms to back me up
1: yeah no I Yeah. and I'm not uh, thank you I'm not dismissing those. I know how No, much. I know you're not.
0: I know you're not. You're just trying to find the line and like yeah. like you know, uh,
1: yeah. I'm
0: I'm yeah. definitely
1: at an abstract level right now. If I go back down to the actual praxis classroom level, I'm 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 less unsure about how these things tangle together. Um but yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I I think that's why we just we appreciate a diversity of instruction of like different instructors approaching it in different ways, because I don't know. I I think I need more of your thinking in life because when that, when that, when that, um, smoke alarm like goes off and it's like, it's like beeping because the battery is low. I just take the batteries out and then it sits on the counter for a couple of weeks. So that's not good. <laughs> so I'm not the kind of baker that you're you're talking about. I'm the kind that's like, I like cookies. And then if the smoke comes, oh no. Right. I, I need someone else that's more responsible in that area. Of course. Yeah. And
1: and the reality of you know of our classrooms is just the whole world crashes into our classroom in so many different ways that we just can't control or even anticipate or or do anything with pedagogically right so i yeah exactly i i hear that um there's some parts of this chapter i don't feel like we totally got to um uh which i think is okay uh for this this podcast i think i think we can probably in the chapters to come do some looping back i do want to i do want to just my final thoughts that i want to share is that i'm i'm really humbled Reading this chapter, talking about this chapter, and all for lots of reasons. But, but, but one reason I'll say, just old name one I feel like what teaching transcript to transcripts is for me is like an invitation into Bell Hook's office hour where she's telling me about her lived experience and she's telling about me about her teaching practices and she's telling me about her pedagogy. And I'm just, some things are, are giving me tools, some things I'm just listening to um, um, uh, and wanting to think about. And I just, and, and, you know, I've been teaching for 15 years and bell hooks is telling me things that are really lighting my mind on fire and also humbling me um, um, just equal measures, right? Um, and this chapter in particular is one in which um, I, almost wish we weren't doing this on a podcast because this is the one where I just want to read it think about it read it think about it um um because there's just so much for me to learn and listen to here
0: yeah and I'll just say that bell hooks has shaped my thinking about teaching and learning since the beginning of my academic career um And and continues to do so. What I appreciate most is not even the content here. What I appreciate most is in an age where, you know, we can get a 20-minute summary of this book. Here's the most important things, right? Or a five-minute read on, on the entire book. Yeah. That we are going slow. Right. And that we're going chapter by chapter or sometimes grouping a couple chapters together. and in doing that we're really we're really getting to experience something that i think is becoming more and more rare which is a slow read of a good book right and that i really appreciate and then to kind of break it down you know select passages and and, and elaborate um you know our own interpretations our own feelings that that come up um based on what we're reading I, I think is a real gift in 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 a time where uh if I'm asked to read something, I usually try to read it as fast as possible. Yes. If I'm asked to write or talk about something, there is a very concrete limit to that. and to have it so open um and to go slowly again that that to me is what I appreciate most right now and and I can't wait to you know get into the other chapters.
1: For sure. And, and I'll say this too, like there's a way, the slow read, uh, there's a way for me to to sort of read in my comfort zone and share on this podcast, the things that within my, my sort of training and discipline, like the structural complexities and the really amazing parallelism that's just th- throughout this mm-hmm. book. What I really appreciate and what I feel like this project that you and I are engaged in, what it means to me is that I really trust you, Sean. And so I can grapple with the things that are not necessarily immediately within my comfort zone. Um, and, and you're loving me enough to process this with me. And I'm wanting to do I love this. love you, bro. Yeah, I love you too, man. <laughs> I'm wanting to do this out loud and publish this because I feel like that's also something pretty rare that we don't, we don't hear this sort of public vulnerable this is challenging me or i'm learning something that i can barely articulate or i'm listening to something that i really can't you know be an in- interlocutor for let me just read it um we don't hear that a lot and so i'm hoping there's some value in in others listening to this or just even just the ethos of this i think for me if nobody listens to this that that is something i can take into my classrooms just that spirit of we're going to be vulnerable we're going to listen we're going to we're going to strive together that's
0: right Very good. And I know you had a a quote from Hooks that you want to...
1: Yeah, this is a good one to end with. Yeah, thanks. Okay. All right, so this is on the last page. This is a way to think about experience in the classroom. I might ask students to ponder what we want to make happen in the class, to name what we hope to know what might be most useful. I ask them what standpoint is a personal experience? Then there are times when personal experience keeps us from reaching the mountaintop, and so we let it go because the weight of it is too heavy. And sometimes the mountaintop is difficult to reach with all our resources, factual and confessional, so we are just there collectively grasping, feeling the limitations of knowledge, longing together, yearning for a way to reach that highest point. Even this yearning is a way to know. If you heard anything in this episode
0: that has you thinking about how you teach, why you teach,
1: or if anything made you feel joyful or even mad, like you just yelled at your dishes or whooped while you were walking your neighborhood. I've done those things. (laughs) (laughs) Then we really want to hear from you. You can find us on the Twitter at safe topics. Let us know how you're responding to today's book stuff. Like what did we miss? or what did we totally get right or what questions did we raise for you
0: and best of all how are you thinking about your teaching and students
1: we'll update what we're reading so you can read along if you want and your feedback will shape our discussions as we go
0: we may even read some comments in the episodes to come and not just the nice ones safe topics is a safe setting for dangerous topics that's right
1: if you like this episode, please
0: rate and subscribe. We've never really asked people to do that before.
1: I know. I think it's cool, though. We're ready to be rated and subscribed to. Yeah, and big thanks to Kelly Burnett
0: and the rest of the Safe Topics team for editing, producing, promoting, and all the other wonderful backstage stuff you do.
1: <laughs> and thank you for listening.